Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, COVID infections continue to rise, even as vaccinations increase. We've been saying all along that if we ease measures too soon, before enough people are vaccinated, the epidemic will resurge even stronger. With increasing circulation of highly contagious variants, the threat of uncontrolled academic growth is significantly elevated. The Conservatives demand that Justin Trudeau testify about the WE Charity Affair. If Trudeau's staffers can't testify, then he can. We ask him to testify for no less than four hours uh, before the Ethics Committee in person. He has shown his willingness to attend events in person whenever it's a photo op or an announcement, so he obviously feels safe doing that. And what will result from an increasingly strained relationship between Canada and China? Yeah, as you watch the government deal with this, they're, they're clearly starting to uh, strengthen and, and harden Canada's position on China. There seems to be less talk about needing to maintain the trade relationship and needing to uh, you know maintain a, a working relationship between the two countries. It's Monday, March 28th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Mark. Good to talk to you again. Let's talk about where we stand with the pandemic and with the vaccination plan. Of course, more and more Canadians are being vaccinated all the time. Uh, There are more vaccines on their way. Uh, and there's encouraging news around all of that. At the same time, though, in many parts of the country, there is a rising number of coronavirus infections, and there is uh, a lot of, you know, there are a lot of questions about whether further lockdowns, further restrictions should be put in place. So it, it feels a little bit like this story is going in two directions at the same time, which is not unfamiliar territory in this long pandemic. Yeah, and so much of what I've been watching for in all of this is the timing of these intersections. Um, You know, when we had sort of two schools of thought about reopening, not reopening, um, how how much can we afford to to ease restrictions on people? Sometimes those things were, you know, weather-related, and in the dead of winter, it seemed like uh, those might be more manageable and more acceptable to a population. You know, we're getting into the nice, nice weather and uh, in most parts of the country, obviously. So, you know, you wonder a lot about pandemic fatigue and what, what people are prepared to tolerate uh, once again as this debate uh, begins to turn again on this whole notion of the conflict and the intersection between tighter restrictions, lesser restrictions, rising case numbers, the spread of the variants, and the age group in particular targeted, Mark, most of the new cases, you know, showing up in people aged between 20 and 39 who happen to be the most socially mobile group and the potential threat of spread that they could they could carry by passing it on to others who are more vulnerable than perhaps they are. And all of this, while there's a certain sense of optimism in the air, more than 5 million Canadians have now received at least uh, one dose of of the vaccines, you know, one and a half million AstraZeneca doses coming from the United States this week, vaccine ramp up happening in the weeks ahead. But at the same time, you have public health officials in in hard hit parts of the country and very concerning parts of the country, including the the federal public health officer, Teresa Tan, saying, you know, tougher restrictions are going to be needed, uh, greater public health measures, uh, people, you know, uh, following the rules around distancing, we're going to need to do all that again, or... Uh, we risk having a higher number of daily cases in what we're all describing as this third wave than we've had in any previous wave. And, 
I'm wondering if uh, how that message is going to be received, and are we going to see a, a a sort of greater accent on possible disagreements, discrepancies between public health orders and politicians under enormous pressure to keep the economy open or as open as it can possibly be, even while we see these rising case numbers. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to uh, the Conservatives demanding that Prime Minister Trudeau answer questions before a parliamentary committee today about the We Charity controversy. There has been all kinds of back and forth in the last week about who should testify, who can be called to testify, who will agree to testify. It's affected the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's office, other people who work for Liberal cabinet ministers and others in the government. Um, so where do things stand on this, and, and why has this resurfaced to this level? Well, a little bit of a very short sort of backstory here. I mean, to sort of synthesize what's happening here is there have been lots of hearings and witnesses debate on the We Charity controversy. Uh, Canadians know it, the failed student job program that was supposed to be administered by the charity, of, you know, over half a billion dollars to to uh, to provide it for this operation. We, the charity, would have got uh, 40-plus million dollars to administer it. Um, it all fell apart because of the connection between we and the Prime Minister's family, the Prime Minister himself. So, bad idea, let's park it. But so far, the narrative has been from the government side that, you know, this was a, an idea brought forward by the public servants and uh, they engaged the charity, it went back and forth, but it never had anything to do with politicians deciding which way this should go. Conservatives and other opposition parties are convinced there's more to the story, that in fact, uh, that uh, they they contend that this was not you know, the genesis of public servants, that this was pressure from politicians to put this thing together and to favor this charity. So they're trying to get at public servants and have them come forward to testify. The government's drawn this line in the sand that says, you know, uh, rules of parliament traditionally are that, you know, of, of ministerial responsibility. You question ministers and you get information from elected officials because they're uh, required to, to testify and present. They also are covered by a certain parliamentary privilege that some of these political staff in the prime minister's offices and office and other offices uh, would not be covered by. So the government's taken the line that despite this being a house order that the these senior public servants would be called upon to testify. And if not, the only out is the prime minister comes in their place and he stays for four hours and get questioned. Uh, the government has taken the position now that that's not happening. The prime minister is not coming. The senior staff members have been told they're not going. And the government house leader, Pablo Rodriguez, says he'll show up at the committee uh, this afternoon. At, uh, this afternoon, I think it's 2 o'clock, uh, to face questions from the opposition party. The opposition party is already rejecting that notion. So I want to watch where it goes to next in terms of parliamentary procedure. What can they do to force this issue? But by the same token, why is it all happening? Why are we back on we? I'm watching where this goes, Mark, because the opposition parties are really trying to push this. Because I, you know, I'm of the view that they have a they have a real interest to try and look for something other than the government's pandemic performance. If we're going to go into a snap election in the next few months, they're looking for something else they can campaign on against the prime minister and the government than just uh, the government's pandemic response. Mm. All right, let's turn to what's happening in China and Canada's uh, assessment of it and, and role in the response to it. Um, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Marc Garneau, uh, said on the weekend that China's treatment of its Uyghur minority population is totally unacceptable. 
he said Canada is deeply preoccupied uh, by the reports of gross human rights violations. Uh, the UN, of course, is engaged in negotiations with China about perhaps granting access to UN officials uh, in a particular province in China where there are allegations of a genocide. Um, so we're hearing very strong language from the Canadian government. And of course, this is happening at a time when the relationship between Canada and China is already strained. So what's the latest on this and where do you see it going? Yeah, there's sort of two tracks to follow, right? There's, uh, you know, Canada and, and joining other, and in fact, rallying other like-minded countries to uh, take a much harder public position against the actions of China and uh, not, not not just in its dealing with uh, its Muslim Uyghur minority, but also its dealing uh, its dealings with uh, foreign nationals uh, on Chinese soil. When there's a, uh, a a spat happening between those two countries, as evidenced in the in the case of the two Michaels with Canada, now we see Canada and China trading uh, sanctions against each other uh, over uh, over that issue. So I think, you know, um, it, 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 as you watch the government deal with this, they're, they're clearly starting to uh, strengthen and and harden Canada's position on China. There seems to be less talk about needing to maintain the trade relationship and needing to, uh, you know, maintain a, a working relationship between the two countries. That That's a given. Everybody knows the importance of that. But it seems like you know the the patience of the Canadian government uh, is is certainly turning to the point where it's it's ready to use harsher language against the the Chinese uh, government, the Chinese leadership. But it has yet to come to the point, uh, which is being noted by uh, clearly the opposition parties repeatedly. It's yet to come to the position of itself, even though many government agencies have many uh, high ranking. Canadian personnel have a parliamentary committee has come to the conclusion that uh, this constitutes genocide, but uh, as yet the Canadian government still isn't there. All right, and just quickly as we wrap up, Peter, um, the climate change and the and carbon pricing, of course, have been in the news now for more than a week. It really goes back to the Conservative Convention. Everyone knows what what happened there with Aaron O'Toole's speech followed by the vote that rejected a motion declaring climate change to be real, followed by the Supreme Court's ruling that upheld the federal government's carbon pricing scheme late last week. So where do you see this issue going next, especially in what very likely will be an election year in Canada? Yeah, I think for the foreseeable future, um, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, is in the hot seat on this one. Uh, since we've now pivoted from you know whether uh, the government you know has the right to impose a, a federal carbon tax on provinces that don't have what the federal government deems to be a satisfactory climate change plan that doesn't meet uh, the threshold of of the federal demands that uh, the Supreme Court ruling has uh, justified a federal carbon tax. So I think until Aaron O'Toole uh, comes out with his al- you know alternate plan that he still promises won't include a carbon tax he's still promising to scrap that i mean the spotlight's still on him and every time he uh, gets questioned by reporters that comes up um it's only been a week since the convention since he said climate change is real the debate's over and that he's going to have a credible plan to deal with it that's going to be something other than a carbon tax that focuses on regulations and big emitters um that's where we're going to be we're going until he actually comes forward with a plan and people can look at 
you know, what the federal liberal approach has been and, and promises to be and what Aaron O'Toole's alternative is going to be without a carbon tax, uh, he, he stole, uh, he's still the political leader that people need to hear from, uh, certainly going into an election. What, what is going to be on offer here from these two parties and what's Aaron O'Toole going to be putting in the window and, and arguing is a, is a credible plan because, uh, the, the notion of, uh, of federal interference certainly politically might still be alive, but, uh, from a judicial perspective, uh, that is gone now, notwithstanding uh, arguments to be made that, you know, is this the beginning of federal government overreach in many other areas? Uh, that's something that remains to be seen. But for the moment, it's all about, okay, if this plan is not the plan for Canada, what plan is? And the only person who can answer that in terms of an alternative is Aaron O'Toole, and everybody's waiting for that. All right. Going to be a very interesting week, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right, Mark, take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. The Supreme Court ruling puts to debate as to whether or not we should act and, the, and whether or not the federal government can act on climate change behind us. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Chantal Hébert argues that when it comes to climate change, the Supreme Court has told Canada's premiers who's the boss. Hébert writes... Last week's Supreme Court decision on carbon pricing will not end the political conversation about conflicting approaches to climate change, but it does alter the terms of federal-provincial engagement. When all is said and done, the decision boils down to one core finding. In the matter of climate change, political leadership must rest with the federal government. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun calls for a balanced approach to COVID restrictions. The Sun writes... We've been at this for over a year now. We've gleaned a lot of information in that time. We know how the virus spreads, who is most at risk, and what activities and locations are causing the most problems. It's time for more targeted responses. We need to use the information we have to make smart decisions. It's the most sensible path forward. In the Hamilton Spectator, Sarah Ahmed considers the impact of COVID-19 on chronic illnesses. Ahmed writes... While the full extent of the impact of COVID-19 on individuals with chronic illness may take time to fully understand, it has been reported that we are already seeing a rise in complications secondary to poorly controlled diabetes, kidney disease, and cardiovascular disease. With vaccine distribution, we have begun to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's about time we start focusing on the optimization of routine care delivery. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The House of Commons may not be sitting this week and next, but parliamentary committees are still busy. As CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, one of those hearings will be today, as Facebook executives are questioned by the Commons Committee on Canadian Heritage. Mark, MPs on the Canadian Heritage Committee will be hearing for the second time this year from the head of Facebook Canada, Kevin Chan, as well as two other senior executives. There are a host of issues in what the committee describes in its hearings description as relations between Facebook and the federal government. First, there was an issue revealed in the Toronto Star article about Facebook actively recruiting among current federal government public servants. There is also the issue of the government's ongoing attempts to curb 
curb hate speech, disinformation, and so-called false news on the social media platform, Facebook lately has been increasingly saying that it encourages and welcomes the Canadian government introducing specific legislation to help guide it in its monitoring and screening of the problem. And there is also the issue of the Canadian government's intention and proposed legislation aimed at getting social media giants like Facebook to pay their fair share both of taxes and in remuneration to news sources that they use on their platforms. And that discussion today will no doubt be influenced by the recent showdown between the Australian government, which had similar legislation on the books, and Facebook, which played hardball and temporarily shut down all news content, including Australian government communications on its platform. That showdown was eventually ironed out. So, Mark, it should be an interesting committee hearing starting at 11 a.m. Eastern this morning. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will take part in a United Nations meeting of heads of state and government followed by a joint news conference with the Secretary-General of the United Nations and the Prime Minister of Jamaica. The Prime Minister will also chair the Cabinet meeting. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna and Minister for Women Mariam Monsef will attend a national infrastructure announcement. And Health Minister Patty Haidu will announce funding under the Substance Use and Addictions Program. She will also announce support towards a safe voluntary isolation centre for residents of Thunder Bay, Ontario, and surrounding communities. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, March 29th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.